Hey folks, welcome to Narratives. Narratives is a podcast exploring the ways in which the world is better than in the past, the ways it is worse, and the paths towards a better, more definite vision of the future. I'm your host, Will Jarvis, and I want to thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen to this episode. I hope you enjoy it. You can find show notes, transcripts, and videos at narrativespodcast.com. Well, Aaron, how are you doing this morning? Doing well yourself? Doing great. Uh, for the audience, we also have uh, the esteemed Lars Doucet with us to talk to Aaron. I uh, really appreciate having him on to um, kind of co-host this 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 morning. Um, Aaron, do you mind giving a brief bio and some of the big ideas you're interested in? Sure. Uh, so my uh, kind of technical background is in the social sciences. Um, I also have a, a law degree. And the bulk of my professional career has been um, starting up uh, nonprofits. Uh, I've done a couple of them. Uh, one was um, uh, providing uh, funding for pharmaceutical drug development to get new male contraceptives to market. And uh, the one I'm uh, working with uh, now, uh, which I also founded, is the Center of Production Science. And there we study uh, different ways to to vote, particularly like how you fill out your ballot and how that's calculated. Um, and we work on clicker way called approval voting, which lets you pick as many candidates as you want. And we work to uh, with local communities um, at the city level and going into the state level uh, to get that implemented. And we've taken uh, a voting method that has never been implemented before in government elections, and so far I've kind of implemented in two cities, working on the third. Uh, and are getting ready to pivot into states. Now, when you say have never been implementing governments before, do you mean American governments or, or any governments? Well, technically, it was used in uh, uh, a variation in Greece about a hundred years ago for for a bit. Um, but other than that, I'm not aware of any. Um, I, I won't hold you to that level of pedantry. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Um, Eric, can you talk about approval voting just for a bit, what it is and, and why it's superior to other methods? Yeah, so I think, um, so normally when you go to vote, uh, and I think if you go out uh, on the street and you ask anyone, well, what is voting? They would tell you, well, you, you have this ballot in front of you with some candidates, pick one of them, and the candidate with the most votes wins. Um, and that is an example of voting, but that's not, the essence of what voting is. Uh, voting is providing some expression of information. Um, and then that expression of information is aggregated somehow uh, with all the voters. And that aggregation turns into a result uh, where you have uh, some measure of support for all the candidates. And the candidate with the most support is the one who is selected to, to hold that office. Like that's what voting is. Um, and you can do that in all kinds of ways. A lot of times people get fixated on the information element, like what inf information you're putting on the ballot. So whether you're picking one candidate, whether you can pick as many as you want, whether you're ranking candidates, whether you're scoring them on a the scale. Um, but you got to do something with that information too. Uh, so uh, for instance, there's all kinds of things you can do with ranking information. Um, you can simulate pairwise comparisons between all the candidates. You can simulate sequential runoffs. Um, you can turn them into point values and add them up that way, all kinds of stuff. Uh, so with the approval voting uh, is really among the, the simplest uh, voting methods. 
so with approval voting, all you do is select as many candidates as you want and the candidate with the most votes wins. And on this surface of it, it doesn't sound like a whole lot. Uh, and really, there, there isn't a whole lot to it in terms of uh, like what you're doing and adding up the results. But that small difference has a big impact. Uh, so for, for instance, when we're using our choose one method, if there are multiple candidates that you like, well, you're, you're screwed. I mean, you, you got to pick one of them. And as a consequence, those candidates will get a portion of the actual support uh, that they actually uh, deserve. Um, and so with approval voting, you're not splitting your vote. And so you can, uh, these candidates that would have otherwise gotten diminished support uh, now get their accurate measure of support. And you don't have some extreme candidate coming in out of nowhere um, who happened to not have their support divided uh, winning as, as a result. The, the other cool thing is like we think about independents and third parties uh, largely to the extent that they don't get elected um, and that we shouldn't vote for them because we don't want to throw our vote away. Well, approval voting just deals with that right off uh, in a way that other voting methods don't do well, uh, including some alternative voting methods. So say there's that independent, uh, they run, uh, your wildest dreams have come true. You get someone who likes all the policy issues. Unfortunately, like no one like knows this person's name. Uh, they don't have millions of dollars in their uh, war chest, um, but you love their ideas. They come with great ideas, all the policy concerns you like, they've got all of them. Uh, and normally you'd be stuck with this dilemma. It's like, all right, well, my favorite candidate ever is now running. Do I support them and like not have a say in the outcome and ultimately like not being able to pick a real winner here? But with approval voting, you don't have that dilemma. You just vote for them. Uh, and if you're in this other dilemma and thinking like, okay, well, I also want to have a say in the outcome if I don't think this candidate can win. Well, you can support one of the front runners at the same time. But importantly, the candidate that you like, they get the support that they deserve and they can grow on that. And their ideas don't get marginalized the same way. So it has all these other important outcomes as well. So you're saying that even if, you know, Mr. or Mrs. Perfect, um, but also Mr. or Mrs. Complete Obscure Outlier, approval voting, even if they don't win that election, you can still show that they had 10%, 25%, 30% support, right? Is that what you're saying? And then they can take that and be like, see, I'm not a marginalized nobody. I did way better than anyone expected. And then they can go on to be a front runner in the future. Is that what you're saying? That's right. And so the voting method is not only used to determine the winner, but it's also used in polling as well, because people can't wait until election day and they got to have some kind of inkling in terms of uh, who they think is going to win. And so they, they match the, the polling to the actual voting method. And we, I mean, we, you'd expect this to be true as well. Um, but polling itself is used in a lot of important contexts. Uh, not uh, some of them are used to determine like whether someone gets a debate or not. Uh, and if you have low polling, well, you don't get on the debate stage. No one gets to hear your ideas, which is imp particularly important with presidential elections. Uh, but with approval voting, um, the polling would match because why wouldn't it? I mean, polling is used to make a prediction and you don't use a different measure than is actually going to be used on election day. So if you're using approval voting on election day, letting people select as many candidates as they want, then you're going to do the polling the same way. And so if you're able to get much more accurate reflection of support, uh, then you get that support. And if someone is using that criterion of polling to decide whether you get in the debates, well, now you get in the debates, 
in, in a way that you otherwise wouldn't have. People get to hear your ideas in a way they otherwise wouldn't have. Are you, are you making the point that the mechanism of polling is essentially approval voting, but the way we actually vote is like first past the post or whatever. So we're tests, we're predicting how the election's kind of going to go in a way that doesn't match the actual mechanism for how we elect or, or is there more nuance to it? Uh, well, right now we use this choose one voting method for uh, polling as well. Sometimes you, you have approval polls, um, but typically they're looking to figure out who's going to win on election day. And to do that, they, they match the, uh, the voting method. Uh, but if the voting method was approval voting, they would use approval voting for the polling as well. So you're saying we would get better polling as well if we had approval elections and approval polling? If you had approval voting, you would also have a, a approval voting in terms of polling as well. Um, and it would be used in the same context as trying to pick the winner. Uh, but you would also get the benefit of approval voting just does a far better job uh, than our choose one method and many other methods, in fact, in terms of accurately measuring candidate support. Even candidates who do not win, they all get a good, accurate measure of support. This can also be shown empirically, which we've done and, and published on. Uh, but you get that advantage when you're using approval voting for the voting method, is you also get this accurate measure of support during the polling phase as well. So. New York, I believe, was it the last New York mayoral election where like Yang ran against Adams and stuff? They used, I believe, ranked choice voting. Correct me if I'm wrong. That's correct. Yeah. And so can you talk about the differences? That's another often hyped example. Like, well, if we just did ranked choice voting, that would be better. And apparently they got that in New York. Mm -hmm. So can you compare and contrast first past the post, ranked choice and approval voting and, and just give us your thoughts on those? Sure. So I guess first I'll explain what ranked choice voting is. Uh, so earlier I said uh, a voting method has all these parts. Uh, one of them is that expression element, like what you put on the ballot. Well, with ranked choice voting, uh, big surprise, you're, you're ranking, uh, which to me is a little weird in terms of naming because in, in, in actuality, there's an entire class of voting methods that involves ranking. Um, the traditional name for ranked choice voting is instant runoff voting. Um, and in some other countries, they call it by different names, like the alternate vote. Um, so it's kind of weird that they call it ranked choice voting because like there's actually a whole class of voting methods that involve ranking. In any case, uh, so you go and you rank your, your candidates. Um, in, in many cases, because uh, the ranking process can take up a lot of space on the ballot, it's often truncated to like your top three or top five. So you can kind of be losing information right off the bat. Uh, and so when you're, when you're ranking these candidates, uh, what, it, what you first look at is the first choice uh, votes uh, in terms of the calculation after everyone is done ranking. Now you look to see if any candidate has more than half of the first choice votes. If yes, you've got a winner. Uh, if no, you look to uh, the candidate with the fewest first choice votes. You eliminate that candidate. You look at all those ballots, next choice preference. You now treat that as a first choice vote. Uh, and now you go and you add everything up again. You say, okay, now uh, among all the remaining ballots, does anyone have more than half of the first choice votes? If yes, you've got a winner. If no, you keep repeating that process uh, with the remaining ballots, which also may not be all the initial ballots because through this process, not everyone uh, ranks all, uh, all the candidates on the line, or maybe they ran out of space on the ballot. Uh, so really, you're just talking about the, the remaining ballots here. So you, you have a kind of uh, simulated sequential runoff is kind of what's going on here. And that's ranked choice voting. Um, now, uh, one thing to keep in mind here is that 
virtually any voting method is going to be better than our choose one uh, method. So I, you do hear a lot of folks say like, well, like it is better than our choose one method. Well, anything is better than our choose one method. You can pick, there are m- many, many voting methods out there. Uh, you can pick any of them and any of them will do better than our choose one uh, voting method. And uh, in, in terms of uh, how it does in other contexts, uh, it can um, do some weird things. So for instance, like uh, in our choose one method, we think of vote splitting among our uh, top preference, uh, which is our only preference in our choose one voting method. We can kind of have that same kind of thing going on with uh, ranked choice voting as well. So if you have similar candidates uh, running um, and one candidate uh, has their votes, but well, if that candidate has the fewest first choice votes, uh, merely through vote splitting, they can get knocked out of the race early on. Uh, so that's one issue. You could prematurely eliminate a, a, a good winner um, who would otherwise be a good winner. Uh, the other uh, component is it doesn't do a particularly good job of measuring the uh, support of all the candidates, particularly ones who don't win. Um, it does do better than or choose one method, but again, like um, not by a whole lot. And also pretty much any other voting method would also do better than our choose one method. Uh, and so what you wind up uh, with as a result is a lot of independents and third parties get behind uh, ranked choice voting. I would say a, a bit erroneously uh, thinking that they're going to get more support. People can choose their honest favorite. Well, in fact, there are certain conditions when uh, folks are kind of punished by uh, choosing their, their favorite is first, which we've seen in actual elections, such as the 2009 Burlington, Vermont election. Uh, but in addition to that, uh, even when folks, even when it doesn't uh, kind of go against them, uh, the other issue is that it it doesn't really show their support because if someone ranks, say, an independent or third party a second, or that independent or third party is already eliminated, th- those other rankings showing support for that third party never appear uh, in the results. Um, and uh, th- again, this is something that we've seen empirically uh, looking at uh, uh, polling uh, using experimental designs. But now we're seeing ranked choice voting being used in actual elections. And you can see this play out in real life. Uh, so for example, uh, Maine uh, has been using ranked choice voting and it has a real independence streak. So you would think, well, if anybody's going to be treating third parties and independence nice, it's going to be those folks in Maine. But when you look at the 2020 election and you look at the presidential uh, results there, which used ranked choice voting, they do no better than they do in other years in terms of when you look at the Libertarian Party and the Green Party. Um, and if ranked choice voting was going to be able to kind of pave the way for them, you would have seen it there, but you saw no difference in terms of results. There's also the... Um... There's also the the question of like the cognitive load of actually voting, right? Like I remember with the New York City campaign, you saw all these people saying it's like, okay, so like like for like people voting in, it's like, okay, you can vote Yang, but rank him here or do this, and like everyone arguing about who gets the top spot and stuff. So like in approval voting, it's just like if I want to vote for Smith and Johnson and you know Wesley, I just I just stamp all three boxes, right, and I'm done. I either would be happy with them winning the office or not. And that's the only decision, right? Is that all there is to it? Is there any like pros and cons to it being that simple? So that, uh, that, that is a big component. So if, for, for example, if you have a large uh, list of candidates, it's way easier to just go through and say, these are the candidates I like, 
versus trying to rank them all. I mean, you can go through the process in your head, like just imagine uh, a list of like 25 or 30 movies in front of you, all of what you've seen um, and rank them uh, versus go through and say like, okay, what are the ones I really like? Um, like those two processes are very different and one is way quicker than the other. Uh, and for, as an example here, um, and this kind of goes at some of the limitations of ranked choice voting is that you can also, it, it can also kind of stumble a bit in, uh, if you're trying to use something like open primaries, uh, where everyone can run at once and say like the top two or top four, go to the next round as an example in Alaska, for, uh, for instance, uh, they have a, an RCV election where there are 48 candidates on the ballot and like, and, and because RCV has those challenges of trying to nominate multiple candidates to the next round, um, what you're seeing there is that they're forced to just use, choose one voting in that first round. And so, uh, you can only imagine the amount of vote splitting that's going on there. I'm curious, Aaron, um, you're a super smart guy. You've got a lot of options. Uh, why did you choose approval voting? Was there like an aha moment that, you know, was it uh, a third party candidate that didn't get any recognition? Uh, just the intransigence of uh, American politics? Like what, what kind of uh, pushed you to work on this problem? Uh, so when I was in grad school, I was in the student group for healthcare reform. And uh, I was out with a bunch of folks in the student group. Uh, and we were all, this was 2008. So we were all talking about who we were going to vote for. And as we were going around the table, I was a bit surprised because all my friends were talking about voting for people who I knew didn't align with their, their interests. And also like they didn't actually support the healthcare policy that we were in the student group for. So I was kind of giving them some flack about that. And they were saying like, well, you know, if I support this candidate who really thinks the way that I do, they're not going to win. And so I was kind of annoyed and I thought like, well, like either I give my friends a hard time, maybe I wind up with fewer friends in grad school because nobody wants to put up with me or uh, looking at it from the terms of like, okay, well, there's some parameter here going on that's shaping their behavior that's causing them to act this way, which really they were saying explicitly saying like, hey, like I don't want to throw my vote away. And so that's what got me interested in voting methods. Um, and I just kind of got obsessed with them from there. But also I, I uh, spoke with other folks um, and really was trying to look at this problem in a fundamental way. And when you're, when you're looking at a problem like this, you, you have to ask really just kind of basic questions. Uh, one of those basic questions is what makes a voting method good in the first place? And when you, and in asking that question, I think there, there are really three big criteria that come up. Uh, one is winner selection, which is a, one of the voting methods core jobs. Like if they can't do that well, then you, you might want to start looking elsewhere. Uh, the, the other component is how accurately it measures candidates' support. So it's, uh, a voting method has more than a job of just selecting the winner. Um, you want to make sure that I mean, an election is about also being able to measure the support of different ideas. Uh, and if a voting method doesn't measure support accurately, then these other ideas, that other dialogue happens in a, uh, in a, in a poor way. And then the third one is just practicality. So you don't want something that's needlessly complex. 
uh, or more complex than it has to be given the value that it offers. Um, you want it to be easy to implement um, to, to the extent that it can be. And approval voting just really checks all those boxes really well. Um, and that was the, the, the main rationale for going in that direction. Of, of course, the, the challenge was uh, it hadn't been used for government elections. It was used a lot in academia uh, and some academic, uh, academic uh, organizations. And so we had to show proof of concept uh, first. And so we did that. Like So in the very, very tail end of 2017, practically 2018 in the beginning, uh, was when we got our uh, initial funding. And within a year of our initial funding, not only did we hire staff at the organization at the Center for Election Science, uh, but we also got approval voting implemented in its first U.S. city uh, within a year of our initial funding. And so, uh, so we had to show that proof of concept, then replicate that and scale that to show that this wasn't some one-off thing. And so we've been doing that at the city level. We started at Fargo, North Dakota, then moved to St. Louis, uh, Missouri. Uh, working with the community there. Um, it'll now be on the ballot this November in Seattle, Washington, and uh, looks it's polling at 70% there, so it, it's looking good there. Um, and then we're, at the moment, uh, looking at uh, pivoting to uh, statewide campaigns where uh, we're not just, we won't just be affecting local offices like we have with the, at the uh, cities we've worked with before, uh, but we will be uh, affecting statewide positions, federal positions, Senate seats, U.S. House seats, as well as presidential elections. Um, and we do this all through ballot initiatives because uh, there's an inherent conflict of interest when you ask the, the people uh, who are elected by the old voting method to change the way that they get elected in the future. Aaron, I... I love this how how you went from zero to one you know one year implement something that really has not been done before in a in a city it, it, that is super cool. What was your you know approach in figuring out okay I I found this new method I think this will be like very effective this will really help the world to implementation. What was that process like? Was it like reading literature trying to figure out how to do this? Did you have previous experience which informed like ballot initiatives? Those are that's the way to do it uh, versus lobbying or something like that. Like how did that process kind of unfold? Well, in terms of like the thinking process, we had uh the the initial group that we had was pretty technical with our initial board. So like we had a lot of engineers, mathematicians, our advisory board was really amazing. Um Stephen Brams, a, a political science professor at NYU, uh, one of the independent developers of approval voting is on our advisory board. Uh, so all that was uh, very critical in terms of being able to help our, our thinking. Um, in terms of the pathway, it helped that uh, we weren't the... So we had what we call a second mover advantage. Uh, so uh, with ranked choice voting, it had a, a multiple decades head start uh, in this space. And so we don't have to start from scratch. Uh, we can just kind of look around and see what was done before, uh, see what was su successful before and see what wasn't. And we just don't do the things that weren't very successful. Um, and then we do the things that worked. Uh, and so we just did that. And ballot initiatives seemed like the clear path there. And what were the things that worked and didn't work? Um, I think uh, one... There's also kind of an order effect too. So the, the ballot initiative component was definitely a, a one that that worked well, uh, particularly at the city level. Um, in terms of what didn't work, 
lobbying seemed to be one of those that at least wasn't going to work at the stage that we are at. Sorry, sorry to interrupt. What do you specifically mean by lobbying? Do you mean lobbying personal politicians? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so like normally, when you get something on the on the uh, ballot, uh, you get some super excited folks locally, and you get and they go and they collect a bunch of signatures, and it gets on the ballot. People vote yes or no on it. If you um, lobby people who who are in office, um, they can put on what's called a referendum, which is a little bit different than the initiative. With a referendum, like for instance, a council. Uh, would just vote on it, and uh, they would put it up on the ballot. So you you skip that whole signature phase, and you already come in with buy-in from the from the local government. Um, so you can uh, you can you can do that approach, but it's not as easy uh, when you're dealing with something that's a bit newer. Uh, and because approval voting hadn't been implemented in as many places, that route is uh, a bit more challenging. Um, so that's something that. Isn't something that that's not something that we can't do in the future. It's just something that is going to be harder in the earlier phases. And you talked, so you've spoken before about how specifically when you're trying to change the voting system, you, you I think you just said that another reason that personal lobbying of individual politicians is ineffective is because you're basically asking them to extinguish the voting system by which they themselves came to power. That's right. Yeah. So can you talk about that a little bit more? Yeah, people just don't like to make it harder on themselves to get reelected. And if they got elected by a certain way, then they're like, okay, well, uh, this is that change that I don't want to hurt my chances. And so they tend to be oppositional. Uh, and so we, I mean, we, we talk with and we get the local advocates that we work with to work with the local government. Um, but we don't rely on them saying yes or no to us. I mean, we just say like, okay, well, gave you a heads up, we gave you your opportunity. If you say no here, like we're not going to stop and this is going to pass. So you're just going to have to live with it and have better elections. I think one of the reasons we're so interested in talking to you about your experience is that the conventional doomerist wisdom about America is that we've just got gridlock at every level and nobody can accomplish anything and change will never happen. And so it's very interesting and heartening to see you do this, like Wesville said, like zero to one experience where you had this idea you wanted to move to get it done. You figured out how to get it done and you got it done in a couple of places. And um, I was wondering if you could speak to the whole like gridlock, doomerist, just aura descending upon us and, and how you like, like, are you optimistic moving forward? Like, do you think it's just about, yeah, just, just like, how did you pierce through that veil or were you just like, oh, just do what works? Well, I, I mean, I, I think a little bit back to like that conversation I had with the the dinner when I was in grad school with my uh, classmates, um, I it would have been real easy, and I think it's easy for a lot of us to say like, ah, like these folks are making terrible decisions. I'm definitely these people were acting in their interest; they were just tactically voting. Uh, but particularly when you're looking at behavior at the population level, you, it becomes, I mean, you can blame everybody you can blame millions and millions of people uh, you could do that but I, I think a more practical and useful approach is to think about what are the parameters that are shaping their behavior um, like if, if you're in a game or you're playing some kind of game you have certain rules and that and those rules determine how what your strategies are 
how you behave, how you interact with others. And it, it's really hard to just go through and uh, just convince millions of people to behave differently, particularly when the rules suggest that they shouldn't behave that way. Uh, and so it, if the rules are really the problem, you got to change the rules. Um, and that's how you're able to uh, shape behavior and get people to begin to uh, operate in their own interests. Uh, so when we think about gridlock, it's like, well, yeah, sure. Like people don't have, they, there is there, there are very few opportunities when we can't be ignored. And one of those rare opportunities is when we vote. Like when when we vote, like the the with the outcome that we get there, they can't just say like, ah, oh, well, we're going to ignore that one. Like they have to. That's binding. Like they they have to switch seats uh, if if the results tell them to switch seats. And it's a real shame that in that very rare instance where we uh, are able to have power that the tool that we use is so bad. Like we just, we, we are armed with this really terrible tool. And what we're saying is, well, you deserve to have agency. Like this is the one time where uh, we can create that realignment where the people in government, where their interests should align with yours. Uh, so why not give people a tool that actually allows that to happen rather than this uh, uh, crappy tool that we have now, this choose one voting method. And so all we're saying is like, okay, well, you deserve a real tool that gives you agency. Uh, here's that tool. Uh, and that's really the, the big game changer in terms of allowing people to like, avoid this gridlock um, uh, that we're stuck in right now. Um, because if, if uh, I mean, it, if, even if it's like your own party, if, if they're not um, like listening to you, like what are they going to do? They don't have to listen to you. Like where are you going to go? Like what are you going to do? Uh, and that's really the situation that we're in now. Whereas if we have approval voting, like now they can get some competition. Like if, uh, if somebody comes in there with some good ideas, they don't have to worry about the same kind of dilemma that they've had in the past where it's like, okay, well, nobody's going to vote for me uh, because I'm a new person. I don't have this kind of name recognition. It's like, no, no, you can get traction, you can get support, and you can hold those folks accountable that aren't doing their jobs. Uh, and that's something that we just have not had before. So how do you how do you get it done? Walk us through. You've done this in a couple cities. How did you get it done? How much does it cost? Boots on the ground. What's what's the formula? Uh, so I, I think like our initial couple cities uh, were a bit um, uh, folks coming to us. So like the first city in Fargo, North Dakota, is just marred by crappy elections, which is not unique to Fargo. It's all just all over the place at the local level. Well, all over, like every level, but also the local level. Um, and so the like people were winning like with under 30% of the vote and getting elected to the commission. And the commission, I guess, was getting embarrassed by this. And so they created a task force. The task force uh, uh, went out, looked at different voting methods. One of the folks on the task force reached out to us, um, learned about our pool voting, and brought it back to the task force. And said, so like, hey, like task force was on board. This is really easy to implement. Uh, seemed to address the vote splitting issues that they were having, recommended it to the commission, and the commission just sat on their hands and they didn't do anything. And so the, the member from the task force um, got everyone they knew, gathered signatures, got on the ballot, and passed it. And that, that was the first implementation. Uh, and, they, and they worked with us along that process. The 
second uh, in St. Louis, um, I had done a, a podcast called 80,000 Hours. And one of the uh, folks in St. Louis um, had heard that and uh, was learning about accrual voting. And they were initially looking at ranked choice voting, which the machines in St. Louis couldn't handle. And they needed something that wasn't going to be expensive for the city. And so uh, they reached out and um, again, similar pro- well, there, like there was a story where the former mayor in St. Louis, um, you may have uh, seen this, like uh, there were a lot of racial issues there and there were protests. Um, and this was also that during that same time where uh, a couple, like a couple uh, outside their mansion, like pointed their guns at a bunch of protesters, it's that same place. Um, and so uh, the former mayor uh, doxed protesters uh, during that uh, during that time and just gave out their personal information, like where they lived and stuff. Uh, and I was like, that's their, that's their mayor, like that's their former mayor. And that person got their office seat uh, through a bunch of vote splitting. There was a bunch of vote splitting in the black community and the progressive community. And as a result, um, there wasn't as much vote splitting among her ideology. And so she wound up winning. Um, and, and so uh, when approval voting was getting momentum, it got on the ballot and it passed. And there it passed by 68% and Fargo it passed by 63%. The moment it passed, that mayor who docs are their citizens' names who were protesting, uh, all of a sudden decided uh, as an incumbent that it didn't make sense for her to run anymore. And so uh, she uh, saw the writing on the wall, so to speak, and she decided not to run. And in the, ele- in the next election, um, you didn't have that vote splitting and you had uh, like it was a more progressive community. Uh, you saw the, uh, the leaders uh, under approval voting uh, once it was being implemented, uh, those tended to be more progressive voices, which is common in big cities. Uh, and also it didn't neglect the, the black community as well. And so uh, St. Louis selected its first black uh, woman mayor uh, after approval voting was, was implemented. Um, and, and Seattle uh, is a bit different um, in that, um, again, you have vote splitting all over the place, like every city. And uh, uh, Seattle came about as a result of our chapter system. So, we have a nationwide chapter system, which our director of campaigns has set up. And so folks in uh, every city in the country, every state in the country, although we right now are particularly focused on ballot initiative cities and states. Uh, so the leaders in that campaign uh, came out of our chapter program. Uh, so we worked with them, we gave them some of the initial resources that they needed uh, to be able to help them move along um, give them advice about different um, components of the election. And um, as a result, like they're ready to run a campaign. And they uh, right now, uh, they, uh, the city of Seattle is in the process of verifying all their signatures. Um, and so, uh, so it's a little bit different in Seattle. And we've pivoted more towards that chapter approach. So it sounds like uh, one thing that's really important is to find kind of uh, a first wedge. You know, where's your Fargo, North Dakota, where you could be successful? Like, in a, you know, someone reaches out to you, like it's it's friendly territory, it's fairly friendly, and you can kind of push it through and then kind of use that momentum to go on to bigger and bigger kind of places to implement uh, given policy. Is that a fair kind of a strategy approach? Yeah, I mean, you're basically thinking about an adoption curve. Um, you go where the lower hanging fruit is uh, first, where or like where things are uh, more cost effective, 
um, and more likely to, to get your early wins. Um, and then you build up uh, over there. So for example, like lobbying is a harder approach. You tend to need a bit more um, uh, momentum already uh, to, to have more uh, wins, so to speak. Um, and so like, that's something for like the later part of the adoption curve, whereas right now we're focusing on uh, where those wins are a bit easier, a bit more cost-effective. And so on the cost-effective aspect, it's like, can you can you put a price on a ballot initiative to get approval voting passed? Like, you know, fundraising is a big part of any of these organizations. You know, can you can you break down like your cost structure for us in terms of, you know, money and 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 human power and just boots on the ground trying to get it done? Yeah. So there's a, the direct cost for campaigns. There's also um, like for CES, like to be able to have the infrastructure that we have, uh, which we are underfunded as an organization for uh particularly for for what we do um we in, in our first year cs started off with a budget of like um 700,000 uh we now have a budget of around 2 million a year um which for what we're doing is we could use a whole lot more uh, and uh that's for like being able to do all the research that we do um looking at the results in all these elections, uh, using experimental designs to compare different voting methods, uh, being able to do the uh, the outreach, getting people to learn about these different voting methods, and in terms of the actual campaigns, um, the kind of the heuristic is like at the city level, um, like maybe like one dollar or so per person in the population, because uh, and one of the big parts that eat up a lot of costs is the signature gathering. Um, which is just not cheap. Um, and then actually running the campaign, um, having a, a campaign manager um, here, like the, the the local group is the one that hires uh, that, that person. And then at the state level, things can get even more expensive because signatures, um, like you need a whole lot of them, um, uh, even in proportion to the, uh, to the population itself. So, I mean, uh, you can see, uh, some campaigns uh, cost way more than that. So, um, for example, uh, like I think the Alaska campaign was like four or five dollars per person in the population um, for for their campaign. Um, but you can do it more efficient than that. And when you have a voting method that's simpler, it, you don't have as high of educational cost as you do with some of these other approaches. Uh, so you get a good bang for your buck when you're doing a pool voting campaign. But nonetheless, it's still uh, a non-trivial price tag but it is an efficient price tag for what you get out of it. So you're talking about signature gathering, right? And so if you're coming in as an outsider, you're inevitably going to have to go through the signature gathering. So given that, um, I I wish I could remember which jurisdiction this was, but there was a, a scandal recently in some jurisdiction where like three or four or five of the candidates, I forget how many, but it was like several of them had all used the same like organization to go harvest signatures for them. And they like all got invalidated at once because like this organization had basically like not like not done it right and had like made up a bunch of signatures, like used the same pen in the same handwriting, like five lines in a row. It was like super obvious. So like what are best practices for signature gathering, like doing it right? You know that you've just I mean, is, is it just hard work? And, and how do you how do you do it efficiently and effectively? Well, I mean, the. You just have to do your research and identify a really good signature gathering firm. Um, at the at the scale that you're talking about, like you 
you can't do this with, with volunteers. It's just the, the amount of signatures you get is far too immense. Um, so you just have to uh, get a reputable firm. Uh, but even then, like even with reputable firms, like we've seen firms um, not on our end, like fortunately, like we've uh, uh, haven't had any issues, but we have seen other campaigns with um, firms that seem good. And it's just super easy to make mistakes in some of these. And as you can imagine, um, uh, there are uh, a lot of folks who don't want to see the voting method change. And so um, they have their eye on you at, at all times, ready to um, uh, stop you in your tracks in terms of the, the campaign. So um, and in practice, you just have to really kind of double check things and make sure that you have a firm with a good track record. But you so you really are hiring professionals with expertise in signature gathering. You're not sending out a bunch of teenagers to just wait outside of Dairy Queen and just like ask people to sign up. Like you you you've you've got professionals who know where the population centers are and know how to like pitch your thing. Like how much do you interface with them? Like do you have to train them on your messaging and everything? Like like how does that work when you when you when you when you, when you sign that kind of a contract with with a outside firm? And there, uh, uh, what we've done. With at the city level so far is the the local groups have been the ones to uh, work with those signature gathering firms, and uh, they, they could work with them on messaging. Uh, they communicate with the uh, firm uh, themselves to make sure that they have the, the messaging correct. Um, of course, like you're playing a little bit of of a uh, telephone, and like when you have tons of of folks doing the signature gathering, um, like maybe the message isn't communicated. 100% to the degree that you will like every time, uh, but they do a, a good job overall. Um, and so um, it's a lot of just communicating to the firm, being clear on what it is. And 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 again, like it goes back to like, when you're dealing with something as simple as approval voting, it uh, keeps that fidelity a lot higher than it can be in other situations with other types of ballot initiatives. I was gonna say, it helps to have a simple direct message, right? Yeah. Like if you have some complicated thing you're trying to get across, not only to your firm gathering signatures, but to the person on the street trying to convince someone to, hey, will you sign up for the Wazzle Doodle Super Wong policy? Mm. You know, that, that might be a hard sell. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Our, because uh, ranked choice voting has gotten a little bit of a head start, our, our largest uh, uh, issue, I think, with a lot of these is folks asking, like, is this ranked choice voting? And it's like, no, this is way easier. And actually, it even works better. Okay. So on that angle, there's another, I don't want to go too deep into all the different kinds of voting methods, but there is one that's kind of salient in our milieu, which is not ranked choice voting or approval voting, but um, it came out of Glenn Weil's book, Radical Markets, Quadratic Voting. Um, are you familiar with what that is? And do you have any opinions about it you'd like to share? Yeah. So with quadratic voting, and this is not one that I focus on as much, but the, uh, and you can correct me if I'm off here because I don't focus on it as much. The, the, the gist is that uh, based on your time in an area uh, that you can allocate your the weight of your vote to different offices, how you see fit. Um, and I guess like technically, you can nest a voting method within that. And that, that can be kind of like a higher level. Um, but like overall, like, I, I don't know, like I, I suspect that there may be some maybe 14th Amendment stuff with like equal protection clause because you're maybe giving people who live there longer um, uh, disproportionate weight and like perhaps there, there, there are issues with that. Uh, but the it, it does kind of go and look at something like, okay, well, 
what are we ultimately trying to address and how complex is it? Like, and what are the, what's the complexity costs that we're, that we're paying for this improvement? And are there easier ways to improve that have a lower complexity cost? Right. I think I agree. I mean, I think we might be talking about different forms of quadratic voting. The one I'm thinking about is the one where you have, say, 100 points to allocate, but mm -hmm. when you vote for someone and you assign a point, they get the square root of the point you get. So if you, to give someone two weighted points, you have to spend four of your points. Mm -hmm. um, and I have my own thoughts about it, but I'd, I'd be interested in yours. Yeah. And um, my recollection, and again, this is not a voting method that I pay as much attention to because it kind of falls without outside the kind of like the, the traditional classes of, of voting methods. Um, my uh, uh, initial understanding was that um, the amount of weight that you had uh, could change based on how long you lived in a particular jurisdiction. Oh, interesting. Uh, um, but it, if, if we kind of like single that out, then uh, it does avoid some of those other uh, issues that, that could come into play, such as uh, someone who lives there longer getting uh, greater uh, weight overall. Um, putting that aside, like the essence, I guess, is like, okay, well, what are the elections that I really care about? And I'm really going to focus on those, for instance. Right. I mean, I guess I guess the, the critique typically that I've heard is that it's like, okay, now it's even more of a math problem than ranked choice voting. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, it I mean... It does come back to that complexity cost. Yeah. Right. I mean, I'm maybe we'll have Glenn Weil on and ask him his opinion on it so you can give a more robust defense. But um, so you are very much in favor of these very simple voting methods. And uh, I think it's really interesting how you, you get out there and you've, you've just kind of engineered this way to like, get these things done. Um, so you say you've had two cities you've done it in so far, you've got an active campaign and a third. Like what, what's the end goal here? Just um, approval voting on everything throughout America or? Yeah, I mean, I think we could do that. Um, and there are roughly 20 or so states that use ballot initiatives. Um, we will just exhaust uh, all those states working with uh, folks uh, across the country. And uh, once those are exhausted, uh, we'll do uh, lobbying and uh, we'll work on picking up the remainder. Very cool. Very cool. Aaron, I have a quick question just on, just on fundraising. Um, what is your approach been? Do you just reach out to wealthy people that might be interested? Is it more grassroots? What's been effective? What has been less effective? Um, yeah. Uh, so in the very beginning, we had no money, uh, which is very challenging. Yes. Uh, so we would do things like crowdfunding campaigns. All my friends got tired of hearing from me during that time. Uh, and we would do like we and we got a couple good projects out of it. Like one was uh, we got an explainer video on approval voting, had a bunch of like animated fruit uh, called a Plantsville in a place called Plantsville. So it was a nice way to explain how approval voting worked. And then we did another one um, that provided funding to do uh, experimental design uh, using polling through a large polling firm um, that allowed us to uh, empirically compare different voting methods and compare that to a control measure, which allowed us to see whether pool voting empirically measured support for candidates well um, compared to other voting methods, which it was able to do. Um, and we looked at that in the 2016 election. And then in uh, 2017, we really just got lucky with our, our networking and uh, I was able to get in front of some folks with resources uh, for our initial funding. 
And our initial funding came from Open Philanthropy, which is uh, a group that looks at highly effective uh, impact interventions. And we were able to get funding repeatedly from uh, from that organization, getting wins that also helped our kind of brand awareness and what we were doing. So that feeds off of itself. So that helps uh, a lot of smaller and mid-level individual donors. And then from there, as our wins increase um, and as other folks give buy-in, like they tell their other uh, friends. And when you're dealing with folks who have a bit more wealth, uh, all those folks tend to talk with each other. And so uh, that also helps to get uh, introductions to, to other folks. You know, they often talk about, you know, it's not what you know, it's who you know. But I've heard an even better version, which is it's not about who you know, it's about who knows you, right? And it's very interesting that you talked about how your first case with Fargo, North Dakota came to you. Mm-hmm. So presumably you didn't necessarily like know all these people in Fargo, North Dakota, but you made yourself visible to them. Do you have any idea how you made yourself visible to them in that early stage? We, so early on when we had no money, uh, we, uh, Put a bunch of articles on our website, uh, analyzing, talking about different voting methods, and our uh, Google search score was evidently high enough to come up on the search result, and that was virtually it. Uh, f- fortunately, like uh, when you well, fortunate for us at the time when you search for voting methods, um, not a whole lot uh, comes up. Like uh, there's not as much competition, and so. Uh, we had enough uh, search engine optimization, I guess, to make it so that we were at least visible on the internet for folks who were searching for our space. Very cool, very cool. So something like you need to get out there, you need to make yourself known to the world for a given policy so people can find you in some way. Um, Lars, did you have any other questions about approval voting? I've got a, a, a fun one. No, go for it, go for it. You, you take us out here. Awesome. Well, Aaron, um, I've really uh, been enjoying reading your work, kind of prepping for this. I I did have one question. I had my bike stolen a couple of months ago. What's the easiest and safest way to prevent my new bike from getting stolen? So so I have a a personal website, which is AaronHamlin.com, where I put all my essays on voting theory and other work I've done in uh, contraceptive technology uh, and also stuff on like nonprofits and setting and uh, as well as technical aspects of giving, uh, particularly dealing with U.S. tax law. Uh, but oddly, by far, like the most popular essay I have is none of those things. It's an essay I wrote on bike security. Uh, so as a hobby, one of the things I do is I do lock picking, um, and which is just uh, you purchase locks, you have lock picks set, you understand the mechanics of how the locks works. And you simulate the the way that a key works to open the lock. You can also use bypass stuff where you don't deal with the uh, the key. Uh, but in any case, like I'm in this kind of community that thinks about that kind of thing, and I also am a big fan of bikes. Um, I'm a big fan of uh, transit without cars. Uh, and there are two big impediments for people riding their bike. Uh, one is lack of infrastructure. It's the top one. Um, uh, so people can feel like they can ride safely. And then the other is uh, people don't want to ride particularly on a nice bike with the fear of getting it stolen. Uh, so I did a, I put an essay together and it talks about layered security. Uh, so the idea of if you hit, so you don't have any one failure point. Uh, so the idea is like if someone 
just happens to take that one lock, then your lock, then your bike is gone forever. So avoiding that kind of situation. Uh, so the approach that I uh, put out there using this kind of idea of layered security uh, just looks at uh, one, like thinking about where your bike is, making sure it's in uh, a secure area. Um, and then I look at the types of tools that a thief uses. Um, the number one effective tool for a thief is an angle grinder, which is a spinning circular blade that tears through virtually anything. Um, and looking at locks that uh, put up as much resistance to that as possible in terms of how long it can resist an angle grinder. Because um, an angle with it, when you're dealing with an angle grinder, it's only a matter of time. So how much time do you have? Um, and there are other different types of, uh, uh, and you have to kind of think of like how much is your bike worth, but also like the opportunity cost of like, okay, like do I want to have to go and uh, find another way home if that's the, how you got out that day or going and finding a new bike and setting everything up. Uh, so uh, other steps you could take looking at, there are some devices like one is called like Boomerang. It has a built-in accelerometer that'll um, go to your phone. I, I use it personally. It, it's, it works okay. It's not perfect technology by any means. Uh, and then that'll uh, make it so that you can at least go back to your bike if someone's messing with it. It also has a GPS so you can go and find it. Uh, and then there are other things you can do, such as you go to uh, uh, bikeindex.org to register your bike. Uh, because like if your bike is stolen and um, the police find it or, or you find it, you need to prove that it's yours. Uh, and so if you register your bike ahead of time, uh, that's one way to do that. And so like also like if police, like they don't do a great job with recovering bikes, but to the extent that they do get your bike, um, uh, and you don't know about it, well, they're going to look on bikeindex.org. And if your bike is not on there, well, you're never going to see your bike again. Uh, and so, uh, and then it, at, if none of that works, there's also insurance too, which is a company called Velo Insurance um, that insures bikes in the US. Cool, cool. Well, Aaron, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, where can people find you? Where should people, where should we send people? Uh, so uh, for... Uh, making sure that you have that agency so you can actually uh, elect people who represent your interests. Um, you go to the Center for Election Science at electionscience.org. Um, you can sign up for our newsletter, um, get all kinds of uh, great stuff in terms of learning about what we're doing, learning about uh, events that we put on, and you can join our chapter program. We have a Discord that folks can join uh, to get involved at the local level, learn about other people who are also interested in this and being able to share our work too. Uh, one of the obstacles that we face at the moment uh, is that a lot of people don't know what approval voting is. So to the extent that you can go out and share with other people uh, our work and tell others about approval voting, uh, that'll really help things go along. Um, and then also uh, uh, if you're uh, interested in the bike stuff, uh, go to aaronhamlin.com. have a bunch of essays on there. Um, also, if you uh, are thinking about giving to the Center for Election Science, I also have a lot of essays on technical aspects of giving with the U.S. tax law, uh, and um, you can learn about how to give appreciated stock using good or advice funds um, and uh, make your gift very efficient to the Center for Election Science and invest in the, uh, the responsive and, and giving yourself agency so that you have a more responsive government. I love that. Well, thank you, Aaron. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Lars. Thank you.
Special thanks to our sponsor, Bismarck Analysis, for the support. Bismarck Analysis creates the Bismarck Brief, a newsletter about intelligence-grade analysis of key industries, organizations, and live players. You can subscribe to Bismarck Brief at brief.bismarckanalysis.com. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Narratives. Special thanks to Donovan Dorrance, our audio editor. You can check out Donovan's work and music at donovandorrance.com.